Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we're learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land, and we need healthy pastures for our horses. Becoming better stewards of the land is a winning combination. It's good for our horses, good for us, and good for the planet. Recently, I've been visiting around the planet to see what some of my friends have been doing with their land. This is part two of a conversation with Sarah Owings. Sarah is a dog trainer. She's a member of the Clicker Expo faculty, and she's an eager learner. She recently bought 15 acres in Northern California, so she's been on quite the learning curve to find out what she needs to do to maintain her land in the healthiest state possible. Many of you listening to this podcast bought your land to give your horses more freedom. Sarah bought her 15 acres to give her dogs more freedom. And she shares with me the same desire to be a good steward of the land. And who knows, that may mean in the future that even if she doesn't get her own horses or other herbivores, she may be asking her neighbors if their sheep and cattle and goats and horses and even her neighbor's emus could come for a short visit for the health of her pastures. That's something we talked about last time. We also talked about some of the invasive species that are creating problems for her, especially foxtails. And we stopped just as Sarah was about to talk about one way in which these weeds serve a useful function. So that's where we'll pick up as we resume this conversation. But I wanted to say something else about weeds that I learned that was quite a revelation. Um, It's easy to get really angry at weeds but they serve a lot of, they serve a function. They'd let you know how healthy your soil is. They're like, um, yes. Right. And, um, yeah. and when you have massive weed invasions, it's telling you that the, the, the soil needs more diversity, um, more richness. And also a lot of weeds are working really hard to bring the land back into balance. So the deep taproot type weeds are actually aerating. So we have uh, hard clay soil here, very hard. In fact, in the, when it rains and you walk outside in the mud, the mud sticks to your shoes this thick, like clay. Like it's um, it's called yes. it's called adobe adobe mud. So and you could pro- I could probably make bricks with it or something. It's just mud. But in the summer, it freeze it it goes completely hard, compact with these. Just it's it's really quite. You know, I don't see how anything lives here actually in the summer, which everything actually, everything goes dormant here in the summer. It's the summer here is like winter everywhere else, although with a hundred degree heat, if it makes sense. So, so, you know, I, every, yeah, yeah. there's nothing, everything goes, you could just feel all the plants go brown, everything goes dormant. Um, and you just feel all the land just contracting and waiting, Shriveled. waiting yeah. for yeah. this time to be over. Uh, until the winter rains come. Um, But those weeds, those evil, evil weeds have been working really hard to try and punch through that clay and aerate it and keep it covered. And, and it's just the best the the land can do right now, given the unhealthiness of the soil, because nobody's, nobody's looked after it um, in many, many years. Um, I can, I can tell by the state of the property when we bought it, that that was not a priority. Right. Right. So have you read Gabe Brown's Dirt to Soil? No, that sounds that's like a good an- one. That's another one to put. Yeah, I'll put that one on your list because he's he's a commercial cattle farmer. Mm-hmm. His book is, I think, very useful in understanding how to regenerate soils. And one of the things that he talks about is how permeable to water your land is and what you can do to increase the amount of water that actually is soaking in because when you have that you know hard crust when you do get the water it's gonna especially since you're on the hill 
it can't penetrate in. It's just gonna go onto the land and away because that hard crust keeps it from penetrating in. And he had some really startling figures in terms of looking at land and, and it was all in the same area. So he looked at farmers that were, so they, they, were, they were organic farmers, but they used, they, they left the ground bare. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have the crop covers on their land. And then they compared that to farmers that had crop covers and a rotation, and but no herbivores. And then he compared his property where he has crop rotations and he keeps the, he calls, you know, you want to keep your soil armored. You want to keep it covered. And, and then he also brings his cattle through in these very short rotations. So the cattle are not on the grass long. They're, they trample it down, they leave the manure, and then they're taken off of that particular area. And the difference in the amount of organic matter and the amount of water that permeate through was just staggering in the numbers. So yes. particularly yes. if that's the soil that you're dealing with, yeah, they're, they're, the weeds are definitely telling you what direction to head in and what is needed. You just, they're trying to tell us, it's like, what are you saying to us? Exactly. What do exactly. I need to do? Exactly. What do I need to do? And, um, and that brings up to an, another issue is if I want to do crop covers, like um, there's a lot of great options. I have to plan that very carefully because there'll be certain times of the year where I cannot spend the water to keep those alive. Um, right. So that the grasses that grow here, they, they have a cycle where they just all go dormant in the summer and you don't water anything other than I'm going to be watering my orchard trees and my garden and whatever, that's it. Every, everything else is gonna go dormant. But if I wanted to fill that with some specialty cover crop, I would have to water it if I wanted to keep it alive in that time frame. But I think cover crops can be annual. So it's possible yes. to maybe just do the, put them in in the fall so that the winter rains sustain them and then they just die out in the summer completely and then you'll have to start over but you you want to be i think you'd want to be careful not to have your cover crops die and have bare soil all summer right right and that, that would and, defeat the and yes and that they are in themselves a fire hazard and you know i know nothing about the climate zone that you're in to be able to say well this is what you should do based on 30 years of experience right. of growing and such a climate. I, like, so I would I would love to replace everything in the orchard with clover. Like I, I love clover. Love the bees. Love clover. But it's a water intensive plant. It's it's not yeah. drought hardy. So it's probably not the best option. Um, so it's it's I got to do more research um, about what you know what a lot of people do here is they just take everything out and cover it with gravel or you know and I. That makes me unhappy, <laughs> but but it does save water. Yeah. It does save water and it does cover the ground. You know, it covers the earth. So again, what what would have been there? Right. What would have been growing there? Right. Pre all of this European disturbance. Right. What would what would the native plants have been? What would it have looked like? Right. What do you need to bring and and what is still possible given the changes in the water cycles and the changes in the climate that have occurred. Right. So what are some of the native species that in terms of plants that you could be planting or you're contemplating in your... Well, I'm doing a lot of research and there's a big native plant movement here in Northern California but what I'm noticing is it's like I, I go on YouTube and I watch all these webinars and it's very much a culture of, and it's a wonderful thing, but of small backyards 
you know, in Oakland, okay. in San Francisco, um, people who get really interested and in, they'll build a butterfly habitat in their front yard. And it's wonderful. They are replacing their lawns with, yes, and they are picking plants that are native to California. But what I haven't yet really put my finger on is, you know, Oakland, although it's a half an hour drive, is a whole different climate than here. Here is very much um, grasslands with oak trees. So I think you call that shrub, shrub oak? I forget, there's a name for that type. So if I wanted to recreate that, mostly what would be covering the soil would be oak leaves, you know, because nothing grows really under oak trees. Oak trees, oak trees, but if you dig under an oak tree and you dig under all those layers of leaves, it's rich soil. Yes. So I, I think I have to really look at um, native grasses, but I have to really research what those are. Um, I'm working with a landscaper who knows this stuff. So I'm, we're just, I'm picking, I want to pick things that kind of recreate that m- meadow, sort of meadow right. Um, right. and definitely drought hardy plants that can tolerate. And once they're established, I don't want to have to water them. Right. But we're even looking like, I love manzanitas. I don't know if you know that tree. It's a beautiful no. tree. It is a California native, but I haven't seen any growing naturally in this area at all. They seem to grow more coastally, which is a little bit um, west of us. So I'll probably put them in because they are very hardy and they are California native, but I'm not, a, I'm not, I, I don't know what moths or butterflies or will they come? You know, I don't know because the, I, I mean, is it the right little microclimate here uh, for these trees? But that's kind of what I'm thinking right now is manzanitas and then grass, native grasses, California wildflowers. And then there are some non-natives that I adore that bees love like um, rosemary and just okay. Full bloom, rosemary in full bloom just brings all the bees. And uh, I have this well, I have this lovely retaining wall in front of my house that I have this vision for just rosemary kind of spilling over it, <laughs> filled with flowers. And I think from there, I'm just going to keep researching. There's so many interesting plants. And I want to put in a lot of plants that the birds like, um, that produce berries, like choke cherry might be a good one. So, and everything I pick also has to be very tough because we have the high winds here. So I can't pick the delicate little pretty plants um, unless I find a way to set up little ecosystems where they have wind, uh, one big plant is the windbreak. And then the little plant, the delicate plants are, you know, living together like a guild. So that'll be fun. Because it sounds a lot like, so I did an interview with Julia Field who's in Australia. And she started with a land that the Mediterranean type of climate, mm-hmm. very dry during uh, parts of the year, definitely in a fire zone. So it sounds, in a sense, similar. Yes. And when she first moved there, there were no trees. So she started planting the native trees. And, and she, did, she did zones because you couldn't do all of it at once. So she would do a section and then another section. And she's changed the microclimate so uh, dramatically because the trees are there. And she's developed lots of ways of conserving them and having the water that she needs for the gardens that she's growing. But it sounds very much as though you're in that kind of situation, but you're at the beginning stage of it saying this is the section I'm going to work on this year Mm -hmm. this I can manage I can I can put down the the mulch in this section and get control of that and then once that is sustainable then I can move out into another section Mm -hmm. and I will have researched at that point what trees I want to do and so on and so forth yeah I would love to put in more oak trees especially in our fields our main field has this beautiful, it kind of, you slopes go up and then there's this top, this place on top where you can see 360 degrees all the way around and it's nice and flat and beautiful. And that's where I go up and do my training and it's a wonderful, but I'd love to put some big oak trees around up there. So, you know, 50 years from now, hundred years from now, there are these oak trees 
And that will help to kind of merge that pasture land with the oak forest that's behind it. Well, you have you you have acorns. Yes, yes. And I do see baby oak so, trees every once in a while. And I try and make sure they don't get squished or mowed. <laughs> that's where giant oak trees come from. Because that would be the question of what what has kept the oak trees from spreading. Right. No. So is it just that people have mowed and that's kept them from spreading or is there something else going on right yeah they've definitely you know there's like i said so we have our property and then there's a fence and then the oak there's an oak forest behind us that actually belongs to our neighbor but she she her property wraps around our property um, and nobody uses that area anymore it's kind of wild it's full of deer and an old pond that dried up and we go down there sometimes and run around and hike, but um, it's it's filled with blackberries and it's very wild down there. It's a whole different universe, but it'd be really nice to have some more big trees on the property because there's very little shade. And even if I got grazing animals, I always love it when they have a tree or two to stand yes. under and just, yes, I just think that's a wonderful thing for the animals that live out there and it would just, so that's definitely something I, and it, I figure you plant trees sooner rather than later because they take so long to get going. And some of them are really quite fast growing. Mm -hmm. It's really quite surprising how fast you can have a quite sizable tree mm -hmm. sort of turn around and you think, oh, look, you're huge. Where did you come from? So the overall plan then, it sounds, is for, you, for your property is that you really do want to encourage a homegrown national park type of uh, situation on your property. I'm, I hope to participate or, you know, put a piece of the puzzle. <laughs> um, even though it, it's interesting because Ptolemy's work is also seems a little bit geared toward the backyard gardener or the city gardener, which is again, wonderful. If, if lots of people with small yards start converting them away from non-native ornamentals, then we'll have these little puzzle pieces that fit together to make this national park. Right. Um, but it, when you're out in the country like this, like when you, when you see that there are thousands and thousands of species of birds, it's harder for you to go to understand, you know, well, what do I need to change? Do I need to change anything? Maybe it's just the way it's supposed to be. And I know all our, all my neighbors are, you know, these are dairy, these are dairy cattle fields. You know, that's what they're, they're, he's making his money over there. There are big signs all along the road saying no spray because it's an organic dairy farm. Okay. So that's good. They're not spraying pesticides anywhere. I guess the, the city will, or the county will spray along the roads to kill weeds, but they can't spray up here because there's organic dairy farms. So that's kind of neat. So that's a good, that's thing. a good thing. Yes. Um, but I, yes. I was talking to him one day and you know, he's, he has thistles all over his fields, which if the thistles take over your grazing land, that it ruins your pastures because the cattle won't eat it. And eventually it, so what does, yeah, it just keeps. Yeah. So what does he do about it? He's not doing anything about it. As far as I can see, he's just sort of the, the field with all the thistles, he's just sort of given up on it and it, he just keeps leaves it, leaves it there. But then it means those thistles make seeds and they blow over onto our pastures. <laughs> yes. But yes. he was bemoaning once that he can't just poison them. He just, he wishes he could just dump poison on them and get it over with. That just told me that although he's a, he is a organic dairy farmer, which is wonderful. Deep in his heart, he's not, he's not thinking about a national He's not thinking about nature, you know, he's not, there's a little bit of a resentment here of any kind of regulations. We had another neighbor that has a little pond and they are, they told us, you know, you couldn't put a pond in these days because of all these liberal regulations, you know, trying to protect the, the watersheds and the salamanders and, you know, and uh, so it's, it's a different, even though you're in the country and it feels like everybody is got lots of nature, you know, it's still a, a, a gradual learning process yeah. of yeah. lots of different attitudes towards, towards how you, how you steward that land. Yes. You know, 
in terms of is it there to work for you or are you there to work for it? Exactly. Be a big difference. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I'm going to learn. Even my um, landscaping uh, person that I'm working with, he loves plants. I, he, that's why I chose him. He's, and he knows a lot about plants. But when I told him, you know, I want to pick plants that bugs like to eat, you know, he, he, he just looked at me like I was crazy. He was like, no, yeah. no, no. You pick p- plants you pick plants that, that the bugs, the bugs don't, don't want to eat because, you know, he doesn't want his, his beautiful garden and all eaten up by bugs. Right, right. And that's not t- Talamy, Doug, t- Douglas Talamy's vision of, you know, you put in gardens that, you know, part of them might look all eaten up a little bit because the caterpillars like them and then the birds like the caterpillars. And, and so that's very different. I know it, it really is. And it's it's changed a lot in terms of how I think about what am I going to plant? So my gardens had major disruption this year because I had to take out three very giant trees, and which was very sad. But one of them sat down on my house mm. and did major damage. So I didn't take it out. It took itself out. But because of that, I had to take out the other ones because they were no longer stable. And one of them, if it had come down, would come right down the middle of the house and really have done major damage. So, but it's meant that there's a just huge disruption in what has been a very stable garden area. And so I'm now thinking about, you know, I've been looking all winter. What do I want to plant? And in the past, I would have been, we have a huge deer population. I would have been thinking about, well, what are plants that the deer don't really want to eat? Yes, right. Yeah, because, because. And no, now it's, well, if the deer want to eat them, that's why I want to plant them. And years ago, I changed from having, so I originally, this was a beautiful botanical garden. So we had, I had all kinds of just wonderful gorgeous, gorgeous flowers. And the deer would come up and, and say, thank you very much for planting these. Jump, 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 jump. Yum, 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 yum. And, and you know, I could have fought back against that and, and gotten frustrated and angry. And instead I said, oh, it's much more fun to live in a zoological park than a botanical garden. <laughs> you know? so, so I live in a zoological park and, and I love watching the deer and I love watching all the other animals that come up into the garden and so now I'm thinking in terms of what am I going to plant and I'm really looking forward to there's a very good nursery near me that that is run by plants and I'm very much looking forward to visiting them socially distanced of course Mm -hmm. this spring and having that native plant discussion uh, I I desperately need to to do some replanting. What am I going to put in? Because I will be putting in things that will be very different from what I would have put in uh, a year ago. Pre mm-hmm. thinking about what Dr. Tellamy is talking about and what all these other people are talking about in terms of how your land can be part of the solution mm-hmm. instead of the problem. Mm-hmm. And one thing I'm thinking a lot about too is balance. So I I don't have a heart to take out some of the things that are already here. Right. They have survived here. This is not an easy place no. to survive. Like I'm looking at right now, there's a strawberry tree, which is not native. It's completely bent this way because of the wind. Okay. And it survived. <laughs> it survived here for a very long time. It's healthy. It's beautiful. It actually, the birds and hummingbirds seem to really like it. It makes little berries in the late summer. I'm going to keep it. Like I, just because it's not native, I'm not going to cut it out. Right? right. It doesn't look like. He talks about yeah, that. exactly. You don't have to take, you know, this is not about saying that everything that is a non-native has to go right that there is a balance exactly thank goodness there is a balance exactly so what i'm just thinking is so i i'm thinking well my the eucalyptus are balanced by the oak trees that's good i can put more oaks in 
Yeah. I have this yeah. wisteria. I, I was really, you know, I, I read horrible things. You know, wisteria is a really invasive plant. This one seems controlled. It's, it's very strong, very big plant, but it doesn't seem to be spreading. You know, it's not like blackberries are everywhere and they're spreading everywhere, but the, the wisteria doesn't seem to be taking over all of the landscape. I have a huge and very old wisteria on the house which was always very well behaved that is now escaping. Ah. And so my attitude towards it has completely changed. Ah. So I think we are, have had enough of a climate change. Because mm. this, this, this wisteria has, has been well behaved for decades. Wow, interesting. But it is no longer well behaved. And I'm seeing wisteria now in places that I am not happy about. Oh, uh, yeah, that's scary yeah. when it spreads away from the place where it's been planted yeah. because it will they will strangle out everything. But I don't have the heart right now to take it out. So I'm thinking, well, how do I balance that? Um, I'm thinking of putting another pergola type structure on the other side of the house. So I'm gonna put uh, California grapes, which are native. So, and this is wine country. So everyone grows grapes here. And I figure grapes should be able to survive in this climate, but a California grapevine will at least balance because a California grape will support a lot more species than the wisteria does. Although the birds really like the wisteria as well. They nest in it. And I've noticed, um, I don't think I'm going to get any blossoms because the birds are eating all of the petals off of all the new blossoms, which is very interesting. And I, you know, now some people would just freak out because the whole reason, the whole reason you have a wisteria is for those beautiful blossoms. And I thought, well, I don't, you know, I have conflicted feelings about this wisteria. So birds, if you like, go for it. So, um, but once it uh, fleshes out with its, all its leaves, it does provide a beautiful shady spot which this yes. land, this property yes. really needs that because there's hardly any refuge from the heat and the sun in the the in the summer so it's good for that but maybe eventually i'll replace it with like if my california grapes do well um i'll eventually replace the wisteria with a new vine yeah but that's how i'm thinking i'm thinking is just balancing replacing um, I'm even thinking I go out every day and I actually, for my own personal exercise, I actually dig up thistles. Uh, I take a, everywhere I go, I take a shovel and every time I see a thistle, I just dig it up. But I'm starting to think, you know, every time you disturb the soil like that, you leave yeah. a space for a new weed or you actually, you actually uncover the seeds from last year's weeds and they come, just come right back. So I was thinking, what if, I have no idea if this will work, but I was like, what if I have a packet of native grass seeds or wildflower seeds, you know, I just carry that around with me. And every time I take a thistle out, I plant that right in the hole and as an experiment. And I won't know until next year, what comes up, like, will another, you know, will the weeds, but if I, I was thinking if I just keep popping out the invasive species and popping in something else. And this eventually something will, the balance might shift. That's what I'm thinking. And I was also thinking, I have so many thoughts. I was also thinking how ironic it is the way humans steward land. And I'm doing it now. Like I put in this veggie garden and the veggies are so delicate and I have to cover them. And, you know, and, and because the wind is too strong and they, they, they're actually not supposed to be growing here, right? They're, they take so much effort to get these plants to grow here. And then everywhere else, I'm trying to kill all the plants that are, that are so, you know what I mean? Like yes. that, even yes. though, yes. even though they are invasive and we don't want too many thistles, but I'm like, you, these thistles are thriving. They are. And I just find it funny the way we do this, you know, we put so much effort into the plants that are not supposed to be growing here and so much effort to destroy everything else. So I'm hoping to put in native plants that are just as vigorous and tenacious as the invasive ones. Right. I'll still nurture my vegetable garden though. Cause I'm, I'm, yes, I'm in, yes. I'm in love with my vegetable garden. It's like little 
babies that I'm trying to keep them alive. And they're, it's starting to, it's starting to work. I have one red strawberry today and I figured out how to keep the birds from eating all of the seedlings. I found some bird safe netting. So everything has to be netted here. And I'm thinking of putting alternate bird feeders somewhere else so that they have something else to eat rather than my plants. Okay. I don't know if that will work, but I will see, give it a try. I like the birds around because they, right. they keep the insects down, but they, yes. they like baby green seedlings very much. I had no idea. And even the deer, I was thinking, I read somewhere that a lot of times deer come in and raid your gardens in the, especially here in the summer because they're thirsty. They come in and the garden has moisture, you know, you've been watering and yes. And they're really, really thirsty. They said, often if you just leave um, water out for them, they will leave your gardens alone. Well, that's easy. So I was thinking about a feeding station and water for the deer, kind of just back away from the, where I'm trying to grow these. I mean, I do have deer fencing and all the protections and stuff, but I was just, uh, these are the things I'm thinking about ways to balance rather than be at, yeah. continually at war with what's here. Yeah, because I think that's, you know, that's a really good theme of how do I shift so that I'm not going out saying, what can I kill today? It's more, what can I help to thrive today? And that I want, I, I, I'm here on this land to be part of the land, not to be battling what's growing on the land. Right. So where is the balance in all of that, particularly because you're not needing to produce a crop and, and use and farm the land. So you're not dependent on it for your income, which means that you have a lot more freedom to explore, you know, what should this land have growing on it? Right, right. And, um, and my only hesitation is I'm worried that my meddling <laughs> is going to cause more damage. Like whoever put this ground cover in, it is filling a gap, right? It's filling in something, but it's also taking over everything. So if I'm around, if I'm running around putting seeds in, I better make sure what I'm putting out there is going to be helpful in the long run, you know, yes. 10, 15 years from yes. now can't just be something pretty that I like. Like I learned things like there's quite a lot of lupin, you know, lupin here, yep. plant. There's quite a lot of lupin coming up everywhere. And lupin has a lot of good features. It's a nitrogen fixture. So it's actually quite good for the soil. But I had no idea if certain animals like sheep eat too much of it, if it's in your pasture, they have birth defects and neurological problems. And so can you imagine if I got really excited and I just continued to plant lupins because they're nitrogen fixtures, there's good plant. And then I suddenly decide yes. to be a sheep farmer. Huh. And now what, yes. right? Like that's how you, you kind of have to think, you have to just really be thoughtful about any major changes you make to the land. And that's, that's my only worry because I am such a beginner and I feel like I could release, you know, some crazy seeding things. So that's why I'm going to try to stay with native things. But again, this and also this, your yeah this area. You know, you're very you're very new to this land, so you have not you've not had that much time to just sit and watch it and listen to it mm -hmm. and see what it wants to do. Right. Which is a big part of when you when you have a property of just seeing all right. What if I, if I step back just a little bit, I'm not going to let everything just go because that's not the right answer either. But I really need to see what happens as I watch through the seasons, mm -hmm. what grows, what dies back, what, uh, what thrives here. If I'm, as you drive around, what, what plants do you see? Is it always just foxtail and thistle or is there something else where land has been managed well and then i would be wanting to know the soil what should that soil be doing in your climate should it be turning into a hard crust or is that the result of poor management by people 
Mm -hmm. Now, is there a way to make that soil healthier so it's more it's it's uh, more permeable? And you're not developing things like the salt crust at the top, things of that sort, that then affect what plants will grow there. Yes. Yeah, I, I want to... It's definitely a learning curve. It is. There's so much. And our, our property has these interesting plateaus. So there's a plateau and then a hill and then the plateau where the barn is and the garden and the orchard and then a hill and then the house, which is on a plateau and then a hill. So it... And there's a ravine that goes down one side, which apparently in the old days was basically a seasonal creek. But it was runoff from the hills because all the hills meet where this gully. Oh, okay, that makes sense. And you can see the gully go all the way down the valley. It just takes the water whoosh, away, which yeah. as far as I know, that's not ideal it, because it's basically just draining off the topsoil and yeah. going. Right. How can you help that water to stay a little longer? Right. Right. On your land. Right. So if I can find ways to kind of divert it into these plateaus that we have, that would be neat. Yeah. And that was one of the things that, you know, that uh, Julia Field was talking about, that she could tell that she was keeping the water on her property because she was looking now at her neighbor who had these beautiful ornamental trees and the trees were no longer thriving because they weren't getting all this runoff from Julia's property. Oh no. Which is a good thing though. From, right. I mean it's all in it's all in your perspective. But what it was saying is that she was being successful mm -hmm. in the way that she was managing her arid land in that when the water did fall, it stayed in the ground. Right. Which is what you want. Right. But so. this winter there was no water in the ravine. We had a few weeks of rain here and there. We've had only one or few, one or two days of hard rain. And that's it. There was nothing, no water made it to the ravine because it wasn't enough water. So it's, it's a drier climate here now. So one crazy idea I have of is actually turning that ravine back into a, some kind of water feature, but using that water, you know, like to, to sort of change the, the microclimate in the lower part of the property. And it would be nice for deer and yes. um, which I know the deer, the deer are struggling in the summers here now because they can't get any water. So there's all kinds of things. I just, I, I can't do all of it, but, um, <laughs> but I'll, I'm starting with this one piece of the property. And right now we are mowing. We're going to see if that helps with the foxtails, but I, there's so many, there's so much possibility. And we, we, when we bought this place, my husband and I said, well, we'll never be bored. Like there's, right. we'll never be bored. There's never going to be a day where there's not something to do or something to build or something to like, my husband's learning how to use tools and gardening equipment. He's never done that before. I'm learning to garden and I'm learning about native plants. And I'll, I'll learn what works here. I think I'd like to plant a few things and then really observe because in Ptolemy's stories, he put things out that he thought would be good. And then he observed over time. And then sometimes he would say it took three years and then this certain moth appeared, you know, that he'd been waiting yes. for over three years and it finally came and laid eggs on it. And that's what I'd like to kind of yeah. Right now, and of course he's an entomologist, so he gets excited when this moth appears, whereas we don't even notice. I know, I know. What moth? I know, moth. I know. I have. I mean, there was a moth there. Ever since I read this bee book, I've been really looking at the bees around here and seeing if I can identify them. Because not oh, that's the other thing that's interesting. The buckeye trees that we have here that are native, they produce these amazing flowers, and they're fine for all native insects here. They're fine for native bees and they are toxic to non-native bees. So that means it, wow. Italian honeybees. So anybody with any hives around in this area has to be really careful where the bees are foraging. That was another thing is like, do you, do you take the, you know, bees are so important. Do we take out the native trees yes. to save the bees? Like, but these are non-native honeybees. They're not supposed to be here. Yes. Right. For some reason, this the pollen from this tree uh, affects the bees 
and it wipes out the whole hive. It's really bad. So if you are, if you keep the Italian honeybees, you hate these trees and want them all to be cut down. Right. And that's very, you know, yeah. but this is the one, this is a true native. These, these California buckeyes are, and they're beautiful trees. They're fantastic trees. But like my, my husband was interested in beekeeping at some point. So I was like, can you research, can you research uh, beekeeping with native bees? Can we, <laughs> can we do, can we do native yes. bees? Because then we don't have to worry about this. Um, the other option is to put the beehives all the way in the backside of the property. And then I was thinking we'd plant a field of native wildflowers because apparently if the bees have enough forage they don't need to go they don't to the need to go to the buckeye as much so yeah but that would be again just that's what happens we want to take this non-native species and then we have to change yeah. dramatically everything to make it work for that species and we could yes. be doing damage because of that you know that's what humans do just because we like honey you know because it's a nice hobby Bees are so important, but it's, I'm learning a lot. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of other bees that pollinate just as wonderfully as the ones we always think of, which are the honeybees. So we could be beekeepers by planting all these non-native trees, but then you don't have the hives that produce the honey and right. so on. It's, uh, yeah. it's very complicated. What's going to be fun is to touch base periodically with you and say, so what have you been learning? What have you been discovering? What have you found out about milk thistle? What have you found out about foxtails? What have you found out about your soil? What have you found? What have you been uh, discovering? What's intriguing you? What have, what have you changed in your plans? What have you added to your plans? You are living in a completely different climate zone from mine. So I feel, you know, total ignorance in terms of if, if I were suddenly transplanted and moved in next to you, I would be saying, Sarah, <laughs> help. I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. How do you cope with this environment? Like right now, as we're talking, there's a heavy rainstorm, you know. So what do you mean it didn't rain? We, this is, I think we're uh, where I am with something like wetter than Seattle, which I didn't think was possible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we have no no <clears throat> snow here. No snow. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, we have snow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to do, and so it's really going to be fun to see how you proceed with this property. Do you at some point bring in the herbivores? How do you do that? Do you bring them in as a weekend guest? Do you bring them in as permanent residents? You know, all of these discoveries that are in front of you, how do you manage the water in an environment where water management is critical? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's another piece we didn't even talk about, but I'm planning that as well for the next couple of years of gray, gray water systems. And because rainwater collection is wonderful, but when you don't get rain, it's not enough. Right. But gray water, right. gray water is a good way to go. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so there's, there's all of that. And of course, again, in my neck of the woods, we don't think about those things mm -hmm. because water is knock on wood tends not to be the critical resource, right? There are other things that are the critical resource, but not generally water, mm -hmm. not the way it is for California. Yeah. Yeah. We're having, we're um, currently having a well put a, an upgrade to the well. Um, because we just have a tiny little storage tank that's about 50 years old. Works, it works. Yeah. But if anything fails, that's all the water we have. So yeah. we're putting in uh, a 5,000 gallon reserve to just store it so that if anything yes. fails, we can at least, you know, survive for quite a while until it, right. it can be fixed. And And that's something I don't know anything about is how you know we're we we have an incredibly good well here that's partly why we bought this place it's 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 fantastically deep like 400 feet deep it's an incredible well but i don't know in these in this climate how do you know if the water table is drying up like how do you yes if, if you're continually you not getting enough rain are? over right. 10 years 20 years 
eventually those wells yes. are not going to be able to produce, you know, the way it's been. What is an ethic? What's an ethical use of that well water? Yes. And is putting in a fancy smancy native plant garden that needs, it's eventually going to be pretty uh, water wise. It's going to not need so much water, but it's going to need some water. And, yes. and that's another question is like, well, I'll, I'm feeding this special caterpillar and it's wonderful, and, <laughs> but you yes. know, it's, but everything um, is, you know, but do we want everything to be a desert every, every summer? Is that hard on the native wildlife? You know, the birds, the birds struggle too. I put out water for them and you could just see they're, they're thirsty. They're very, very thirsty. Um, and the deer are thirsty and, so, you know, there's that's hard. That's hard to look at. These animals are struggling. Yes. In the wild. So that's hard. Yeah. So, yeah, so many dilemmas, so much. So I would love to continue to check in. This is a wonderful time because it's spring and everything is exciting and new. Um, and, um, and then if you checked in with me in the summer, when it's 100 degrees, everything is brown and there are fires, um, I will be feeling less hopeful, <laughs> but yes, it, it, but it's, that's part of the seasons here. Right. That is, that's your season, right? That's the cycle of your, of your vegetation. Yes. I remember going once to, it's one of the first times I was in the Los Angeles area and, and everything looked so brown to me. I was there, it must've been for the clicker expo. I was there, so it was in the winter, it would have been January. Mm. And everything looked so brown to me. And I remarked to the person who was my host, I said, so does it get greener in the summer? <laughs> and she said, this is our green season. <laughs> it's like, oh, oops, <laughs> sorry about that. Yeah, uh, that's what I felt here. Winter is like spring here. So, because yeah. the rains start, it's a, it can be kind of cold, but yeah, so you can't put your tomato plants out in winter, but everything starts to come to life in winter. Yeah. So it felt like spring. Now it feels really like spring because it's warm. It's warm, but not too hot yet. And everything's still green. I mean, I could show you just quickly, just the, you just have to see. I know that you can't see, the, the people listening can't oh see, goodness. but that's green. But you're completely green. Yeah. It looks like you've got a lawn out there. Yeah, that's. Or it looks like that. It looks like green horse pasture. Yes, it's all pasture you know, like, and green. But all yeah. that grass that looks so wonderful will be foxtails in about four months. Wow. So. Now. Well, can the, well not the pastures, but well, the, the lawn in front of our house that looks like a nice lawn right. is not a lawn. It's all weeds. <laughs> wow. But it looks so pretty right now. Yes, isn't it gorgeous? Yeah, because I've seen you, I've seen some of the pictures of your property when it's all brown and dry, dry back. So that's staggeringly different. Yes. Wow. Yes. And this is just from the small amount of rain we had this winter. Yeah. And that's, it was enough. So that's why everyone's got their animals out grazing and to yeah. really take, wow. take advantage of this rich time of the year. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think also, you know, we've talked about Dr. Tallamy's work and the biodiversity, but I think deeper than that, literally deeper than that, is this need that we have of sequestering carbon in the soil. Mm -hmm. So in addition to looking at native plants and how do I support the biodiversity and really help to bring back some of the native species that are being pushed out by the invasives. But what do I need to be doing? What additionally can I do that will help to sequester more carbon mm -hmm. in the soil? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and certainly running a lawnmower every weekend across your acreage is not probably helping no. tip the balance, but what can you be doing with the soil that will contribute to carbon sequestration. And that's the other big question. Yes. Big question. Yes. So it'll be really interesting to check back periodically 
and see, because you are a researcher, and I think that's really part of the fun of chatting with you, is what, what books have you been reading? What have you found? Whose ideas seem sound to you? Mm-hmm. What is the approach that you're going to be taking? What are you doing next? I had a wonderful email exchange with Amanda Martin, who's someone else that I did the podcast interviews with, and she's struggling with rushes and the struggle she has, you know, how do you manage them and what she's learning. And, and there was always that looming in the background of, well, do I really have to poison them? I don't want to, but it's looking like that may be the only answer. But what she's discovering is it's the soil again, mm-hmm. that if you change, improve the soil, you can manage the rushes. So, you know, it's what does that mean for each, for the cl- different climates that we're in? What you need to do with your soil in your climate is going to be very different from what I would be doing here in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean? You know, the principles are going to be similar. That's why I'm, you know, I'm so enjoying this journey around the planet, as it were, because it's all well and good to say, this is what I do with my horses in, you know, upstate New York. But that doesn't help you. You know, if you add horses, it doesn't help you in California because it's so, such a different climate. And then if we add into that mix, well, okay, yes, I'd, I want to have my my horses, I'm, they're not on every inch of my property. So how do I manage the rest of my property in an ethical way? And what does that mean? And one of the things that you verbalized so well are all these quandaries. If I do this, what is the effect? You know, if I, if I put in all these beautiful native plants, but I'm having to draw more water from the well, what does that do? to the water table? What does that do to the aquifer? Am I doing more harm than good? If I take down the eucalyptus because it's a non-native, I've just taken down the roosting area for all of these birds. So that's no good. There are all of these quandaries in terms of as an intruder, which, you know, on this land, but now the steward of this land, how do I make any choices at all? So I don't become so paralyzed that I do nothing. Right, right. And that's why my way of learning is do as much research as possible. Try. I mean, you just, I just do it. I just have to do things and and observe. And I mean, there are so many invasive species already here. So I, I don't, I mean, I could, yeah, I didn't do that. <laughs> you didn't do that. You didn't plant them. It's like nope. getting uh, a dog from the shelter. You didn't teach that dog those charming behaviors that you can't live with. So you didn't plant them. They're there. Yep. And I can now, just how try to be it? as responsible as I can be. Like I said, like uh, I'll put in the garden this year, but next year I want uh, a gray water system sustaining almost all the ornamentals and the natives. Anything new, I want it sustained by gray water rather than well water. Like I have that goal yes. for the following, because I think that's the balance idea is if you do this change, it, it's like uh, those companies where they say, you know, if you buy from us and you, you pay extra $5, we'll, we'll do a carbon offset, you know, <laughs> because we had to ship that thing. Right, right. So it'll do a, a carbon offset. Like, I feel like that's the best I can do right now is any change I make, I'll see this, this has an impact. So this is the, this will be my balancer if, and then I have to make sure I'll watch and see if it, if it does, if it helps. So, and I'll have to, I probably really should go talk to, there's a lot of resources of real people that are deeply interested in the native, um, like a native plant societies that are in this area. That's the most important thing. Cause I could go to San Francisco and learn really good things but I don't know if it would necessarily speak to the species I need to put in here. So, right. so that's something I really need to do in the next year as well, is just kind of seek out people, maybe some um, permacultural, some, someone with permacultural training could look at the landscape that I have 
and tell me a better way to use the water. Things like that. Before I do any major landscaping, you know, like major, (laughs) put a pond in, oh, it's in the wrong place. You know, it's, I didn't use gravity properly, you know, so that kind of thing. Yeah, because you don't have to be in a hurry. The land has been, you know, it's been doing its thing for a while before you bought it. Yes. So if it goes another year without, you know, maybe, maybe you really should be putting more oak trees in over there, but and and the sooner the better kind of thing. But a year in the grand scheme of things, while you learn where best to move first, right. starting out sort of around your house makes the most sense. And then moving out from there or mm-hmm. in certain areas that you know that you're going to be making more use of. And then that whole thinking of, you know, with the trees, do I as you say, when you look at the oak trees, those old branches, they, they don't need to be taken out. Well, there are a lot of people who would look at it and say, oh, we should take those out for the good of the tree. Mm-hmm. Or they're ugly. They're not aesthetically beautiful. Or your strawberry tree, which is leaning over, you know, there would be people who would take it out because it's no longer, in quotes, pretty. Right. Well, and that's something I, I feel good about is five years ago, I might have come in and just put in plants that I thought were pretty, you know, or like just no awareness at all. Just, I, I wouldn't have had any of these ideas at all. So yeah. that's, that's good. I'm, I'm one step ahead now. I'm just a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's all yeah. we can hope for is rather than sort of mindlessly planting and cutting and like, I had no idea, like if you cultivate like one very tempting to get a cultivator and just go over all the thistles and just tear it all up and shred the soil up and it would shred them all, you know, cause I go out by hand and do one at a time with a shovel. It's going to take 25 years, Yeah. but, right. but I've learned that's the worst thing to do because not only are you disturbing the soil, you're, you're, and you're going to kill like whatever's there, like snakes and whatever, but right. you're going to release all the seeds that are in there. And you're going to have 10 times more thistles the next year. And I had no idea, but it would be so tempting to just hire some, to do that, get a nice electric cultivator and just, it would be done in like five minutes. It would be. Yep. yep. It would look great for a week. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I feel that way a little bit about these mowers that we bought, but um, like I said, that's our first, we really wanted the dogs to be safer. Last year when we moved in, they had to wear fox hoods, foxtail hoods, have you ever seen those? Which are not terrible, the dogs don't mind them, but I was terrified, like every time we went out, I had to check their toes, I have to groom them, I have to, you know, and one of my dogs developed a cough, he developed a cough and I was just petrified, I kept saying, oh, he's got one in his lungs, he's gonna die, you know, he's, and that's not very, uh, that's not free. That does not sound like freedom. <laughs> that's no, not freedom. That does not sound like freedom. <laughs> and we were just hoping that if we could just this this year, maybe keep the seed heads, you know, from 9 million of them to maybe, you know, 1 million. <laughs> that's not, that's 8 million less that could possibly hurt the dog. So, yes, yes. But as I've mentioned, I think it's really not a sustainable uh, solution in the long term. But that is why I'm redecorating or redecorating, revamping the backyard area because I'm going to have one safe zone that I'm replacing the plants that I want to, that are dangerous rather than just destroying them. Yeah. Well, you know, it it is going to be fascinating. And so I will plan on touching base periodically. You can send up a flare and say, I've been learning some really cool things. We should have a chat and it'll all be, I think, good information because the, I think the, the piece that you really highlight is that those of us who have land for whatever reason, whether it's because we have horses or we just wanted to live in the country or you want freedom for your dogs or whatever the reason is that if we are property owners, and whether, again, that's a patio, or in an apartment, or a suburban lawn, or actual acreage, that we, we need to be thinking about these questions. 
of how do we live on the land in a sustainable way? How do we live on the land so that we are good neighbors to the natural world and that we are making some positive contribution to the climate change crisis? Yes. And that's a lot more than land used to have to do. Mm -hmm. You know, with uh, horse pastures, we would think, well, we just want, you know, we want our horses to be able to go out safely and, and eat grass. We weren't thinking about, you know, sequestering carbon in the soil. And, and so, you know, the horses destroy the pasture. Well, that's just what horses do. Uh, well, let's rethink that. Yes. Let's rethink that. Yes. And that's a piece that I'll, I'll think about more, too, if I bring grazing animals on the land here is, do I divide the main pasture into two and rotate them so that they're not going to eat it all the way down to dirt? And then you have to feed them hay, right? Then you have to feed them hay, right. which has to be shipped in. Yeah. And then you have more soil erosion. And, you know, that's all those problems. So I, I just did uh, the, the podcast, finished the series with Jay Jackson, and she's in northern Vermont. It's, a, again, a different climate zone from what you're dealing with. But her discussion of her pasture rotation and the reasoning behind it is absolutely worth considering. Mm -hmm. The recovery time that you have to allow. So the number of paddocks that she has developed for her horses so that she can move the horses on and then move the horses on and then move the horses on and they're not going back into a paddock until it has had sufficient recovery time. Mm -hmm. And that's what uh, Gabe Brown talks about as well. And he's in, I want to say, North Dakota. So again, a different climate zone from ours, very arid, much more arid climate than we're dealing with. And that it's that rotation so that there is recovery time. And all of that you'd want to be considering and looking at. But if you're just borrowing them, for a weekend or a week, then that changes things again. So it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see what what emerges over time. Yes. Very fun. Very fun. Very fun indeed. You may yet end up with border collies and sheep. You never know. The border collie. I have to have short hair. I can't have any long haired dogs here because of the foxtails. Yeah. Foxtails. Yeah. And I have a book I can throw in. It's a book called Garden Revolution by uh, Larry Weaver, no, Wiener, Wiener. Oh, I hold it up and it's backwards for you, isn't it? Um, and no, it's right. Oh, Thomas Christopher. So Larry Wiener, okay. and it's um, how our landscapes can be a source of environmental change. And oh, excellent. Uh, Ptolemy likes this one as well. And what I love about, because okay. I told you, you know, you said, what should it be like? And this book is all about meadows. Uh, well, it has a lot to oh. do with, I mean, I don't know if you can see this, but. I can see that. Meadows. Beautiful meadows. So it's, yes. um, and that's a landscaped. That's like, you know, you hire a landscaper and they can help you build a meadow, which is a whole yeah. different, right? Rather than these sort of sculpted bush here and, uh, you know, everything's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so and this is kind of what I'm picturing. This is what I'm picturing is that I want to make my yes. land look kind of like this, but everything has to be good for grazing as well, you know, or, the, yes. or good for the deer or, um, but anyway, the picture for everyone is just wildflowers in, and grass in a, in a, in a field. Yes. Um, and that's kind of what I would love my land to look like um, if that's sustainable, but, you know, and crowding out all the thistles and things like that. Well, we'll find out if it is, mm -hmm. you know, it would, you, this will be the great experiment. And you're not the first one who's set out on this journey. There have been so many good projects ahead that really show how much can be done and how much the land can change. Mm -hmm. So very neat. Very neat. Well, thank you. Very neat. Thank you. This is so fun. Yeah. So delightful. Yeah, it was. It was good to chat. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Great conversation. And we'll do it again. My pleasure. Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you for listening. We recorded that in a downpour, so my apologies for midway through all the background noise. That was the water pounding on the roof.
And we may hear it now because it's raining again. This is such an astounding time of the year here in upstate New York. It's really been dry for this area. We've had very little rain. And then a couple days ago, we got fairly mild rainstorm. But everything has just turned green. It's just so pretty right now. Earlier this week, I finished moving the winter's accumulated manure to the veggie garden. That was a monumental task, because most of it has to be done by hand. And right now, the garden looks as though a giant mole has been at work. I've got all these wonderful raised beds in the garden. My next task is cleaning out the goatery. The goats are huge hay wasters, which is actually okay. It gives them a thick, warm bed over the winter, and now all that hay is going to be mulched between the raised beds in the veggie garden. So that keeps the weeds down and it conserves water, and it also gives me lots of exercise, walking the wheelbarrow loads down to the veggie garden. The goats like to help me, I, and I, I really should put that in air quotes. Their idea of helping is to pose theatrically with one foot on the pitchfork, waiting to be reinforced for this clever behavior. Either that, or they like to point out what needs to be moved next by standing directly on it. They're very cat-like in their version of Mother's Little Helpers. But they are really fun companions when I'm out working. They don't wander very far. I can let them graze while I'm busy working, moving manure from one place to another, and if I get too far out of sight, they all come running, which is highly entertaining. They're, they're really quite amusing creatures. And they provide great mulch and great compost for my veggie garden. So good companions to have. And it's really all good fun. I'm still enjoying the veggies I put away last summer. It looks as though last year's harvest is going to get me through to the spring veggies. And this past year, I've definitely appreciated going to the grocery store less frequently because I've got a freezer full of vegetables from the garden. And in this pandemic year, fewer trips to the grocery store has been a really good thing. So the cycle of the seasons is continuing on. Sadly, I'm noticing fewer Canadian geese than in past years. I've been noticing that now for the last couple years. And hopefully that's just a local phenomenon and not something that's of larger import. I listen to the news and hope that we haven't lost too many of our avian migrants. How many of the swallows that nested in the barn last year. How many of them are going to make it back this year? I always wonder that. And when they first appear in the barn, it's such a good, good sign of spring coming. And I also think, how many more cycles of the seasons will we have before we collide with the worst effects of climate change? I am ever the optimist. I really do believe we can make a difference. We have to make a difference. You have only to go outside to discover the thousands of reasons why we should want to. So, yes, we can make a difference. And together, we're learning how. Thank you for listening.